0: Oh, good morning. It's good to be together this morning. Great to worship and uh, just so thankful for uh, Darren's songs that he's selected. I think they lead in well to our lesson this morning and so thankful for Mike's thoughts around the table. Thankful for the way in which uh, Tim and Dylan led us at the table. Thankful for Jason's prayer. Uh, just a good morning to be together and to worship God. Thankful for all of you. This morning, uh, being the last Sunday in the month, brings us to the eighth lesson in our One God, One Story series. Uh, and so that being the eighth lesson, we're on the eighth book, and that means that we are uh, at the point where we've been through seven books of the Bible in that series already, which is kind of hard to believe. Um, maybe, maybe it's not hard to believe for you, but it's a little hard to believe for me. Um, and so that brings us to the book of Ruth. But I am realizing that we're getting to the point where if I recap every lesson that I have preached in the series thus far, the recap may be even longer than the sermon. So, But we're not at that point yet, we're just getting close, so we're still going to recap this morning. So um, it's uh, it's a good time filler. No, no, no. I, we have plenty of content to go through this morning aside from that. But, but uh, at this point, uh, I think we're still safe to do that. So real quickly, just to kind of recap. If you're visiting with us, uh, what we've been doing on the last Sunday of every month is going through the Bible, one book at a time, and uh, considering a lesson that helps us tie in that book to the overall biblical narrative. And so, uh, we've gone through Genesis through uh, well, no, Judges. is before, we, yeah, there we go. Uh, Genesis through Judges. It's right here. I don't know why. I... Stumbled over that, but gone through Genesis through Judges uh, so far, and that brings us to Ruth this morning. But we started in Genesis, and we talked about the sign of the covenant, how in Genesis chapter 17, God sets forth the covenant and his covenant expectations of Abraham. Then we moved on to Exodus uh, and talked about how God is a God of deliverance. He delivered his people in the Exodus, and he showed his people and continues to show his people that he will do what it takes to make good on his covenant promises, even if it involves supernatural acts of deliverance. But he will deliver his people. Then in Leviticus, we looked in Leviticus chapter 19 about how God wants his people to be holy, and therefore he is divided and he is named. God is a God who divides and he names. He says, this is holy, this is unholy, and I want my people to be those who are holy. And that's what he talks about throughout the book of Leviticus. And then in the book of Numbers, we looked at a lesson entitled, When the Lord is With Us. And there we learned the timeless truth that God's people must always choose to fight when he commands it, but victory is certain when you are fighting on the Lord's side. And that ultimately, we have to go when God says go and stay when God says stay. And ultimately, that points to Jesus, who went to earth when God said go, and he stayed on the cross and stayed to fulfill God's will, even when God said stay, as Mike talked about this morning. Then we looked in Deuteronomy chapter 6 at the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's really the call for God's people of all time throughout the Bible, is to love God most. And then in Joshua chapter 24, we looked at the covenant being renewed. when Joshua was about to to pass away very soon, but he's calling Israel uh, to, to renew the covenant, to consider their spiritual history, all that God had done for them compared to the gods of the nations around them who had done nothing for them and to choose God alone because he is their God who made covenant with them and has kept promises, again, like we talked about, who's delivered them and who's always with them and will always give them the victory when they choose him. And so they renew the covenant and choose to follow God. But then in Judges, we looked at how that doesn't last long at all. And quickly, they start to go downhill in a downward spiral of departure from God. And what that tells us is that incomplete obedience can never lead to complete deliverance. And ultimately, incomplete obedience leads to dire spiritual and physical consequences for any people of any nation. So the next book in the Bible, after the book of Judges, is the book of Ruth. Ruth is fascinating for many reasons. It's in, I would say in my experience, but I'll say from what I've heard, has been the subject of many women's Bible studies uh, over the years, uh, the book of Ruth. But it's fascinating for other reasons, and maybe the most immediately apparent reason is that it's just a nice story. It's very pleasant to read. It gives you hope, and it shows you admirable things you want to imitate as compared uh, to Judges, which is kind of the opposite of that, not a very nice read uh, there. But encountering difficulty and feeling helpless, I think, which is where Ruth starts, those are phenomena that we are certainly familiar with today. I think all of us can relate to encountering difficulty and feeling helpless, hopeless at certain points in our life. And so it cannot but be encouraging and refreshing to see that when Naomi and Ruth find themselves in that situation, of feeling helpless, that God delivers them. God provides redemption. And along those lines, let me just give a basic overview of the plot of the book of Ruth to to give some context to the passage, which is near the end of the book in chapter 4 that I want to look at with you this morning. But the story begins when we meet Elimelech and Naomi. And so they are Jews, married, a couple, from Bethlehem who have two sons. When a famine comes to Israel, their family moves to Moab in order to survive because there's this famine in Israel. But, however, Elimelech, the patriarch of this family, soon dies. Naomi's left with just her two sons. And so those sons each subsequently marry a Moabite woman. Uh, And so they have a wife from the land of Moab. It all seems to be well with that, but after only ten years... Both Naomi's sons died, leaving these three women without a man to provide for them. And so after this happens, Naomi hears from back home in Israel that God's given his people food. The famine's over, and you you can go back. And so that that begins for her the process of returning to her homeland, which is the promised land given to Israel. And so she tells these two Moabite daughters-in-law... That she has, uh, who her son's married, she tells them return to their families, find new husbands, you can find a new husband. I'm too old, but you can, so go do that. And she wishes them success. One named Orpah, uh, which my Microsoft word or pages apparently corrected to Oprah, but it is Orpah, <laughs> not Oprah. Uh, but one named Orpah kisses Naomi and departs. But her other daughter-in-law, Ruth, will not leave her side and makes the famous statement that we're all familiar with, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And of course, the reason this is so remarkable is that Ruth, again, is not an Israelite. She is a Moabite. She is a foreigner to the people of God. And yet she still makes this assertion, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. So Ruth, having made her choice, uh, off to go to Israel. Yet upon arriving... What happens? Well, they're still without a man to provide for them. And so, as such, they do remain dependent on the Mosaic Law's provision for those who are poor, which if you remember back in the law, they were allowed to glean the leftovers from Israelite fields after the reapers had gone through. That was to protect the poor. The father was the widow. Those laws were in place for them. And so, they were dependent on that, but they had some provision, but not ideal. And as the rest of the book unfolds, God provides for Ruth and for Naomi uh, by by extension, in the form of what is called a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman, kinsman redeemer is one who was obligated by the statutes in Leviticus chapter 25 to pay or make up for a loss that a family member suffered. In this case, Ruth had lost someone to provide financially for her. That's what she lost. But also, she had lost the, the ability to provide the possibility of children for her. She lost someone to do that for her as well. And so by God's kindness, Ruth meets Boaz, who redeems her and shows love to her. And just like that, Naomi and Ruth are now redeemed, they're cared for, they've regained this hope and this comfort that they lost when they had no man to fill these roles for them. So there's the overview. And the reason I wanted to go through all that is that all those events, we have to have them as a backdrop in bringing us to chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, where we see the outcome of all that has happened throughout the narrative of the book. And so, when we get to chapter 4 and verse 13, what's happened is Boaz has just agreed to redeem Ruth, and he's made arrangements with the one nearer relative. There is one person closer related to them who is also qualified to be a redeemer. But Boaz made these arrangements with that guy that that he's going to be the one to redeem her. And so, having made those arrangements, we begin in verse 13 with this Ruth chapter 4 and verse 13. So, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. the father of David." Really, the book of Ruth is, in my estimation, one of the easiest books in the Old Testament to connect to the New Testament, because really, the book of Ruth is the gospel story. So, it's easy to understand how it fits into the biblical narrative, which, of course, is kind of the purpose of this One God, One Story series. But because it's so clear how the book fits in, just from a relatively cursory reading— I want to try to emphasize this morning not only how the story of Ruth fits into the overall biblical narrative, but I also want to emphasize how the story of Ruth shows us how we fit into the overall biblical narrative. I think it does that as well, but maybe we have to dig a little deeper uh, in, into, into the book to find that. But, but I think it's there, and I hope that will be helpful uh, this morning. Well, let's start off big picture as we look at Ruth chapter 4 uh, to help us find these connections that we're looking for. The first thing I would suggest to you is that Ruth points us back to God's promises and God's covenant. Ruth points us backwards, actually. Early in this series, when we were in Genesis, well, all we could do was be pointed forward because that's the very beginning. But now we're far enough into where, okay, connecting this to the biblical narrative isn't just a matter of looking forward, but also looking backward. How does this connect to what God has said he would do? And really, immediately, we can see that Ruth is a very Abrahamic figure, What does she do but leave her homeland? She leaves her people, and she says, where you go, I will go. I'm following, ultimately, someone who represents the God of Israel to her. And so she is trusting God's promises. She is aligning herself with with that kind of an Abrahamic call. So immediately, in our minds, is this idea that, that, okay, we're being pointed back to the very beginning, to Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 12 specifically. But one of the amazing things about the book of Ruth, before we even get really into that, is that despite the fact that the events described take place during the period of the Judges, which right off the bat this book tells us this all took place during the period of the Judges, we still see God keeping his covenant and his promises. Israel is in rough shape. Um, And so that's what we we should think when we read in the very first verse of Ruth, that all this did indeed, indeed take place during the time when the Judges ruled Israel. And I mean, I'd imagine you're all well aware of the fact that this is a time when Israel rejected God. That's basically what they were doing. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. They, they had no king in Israel. Not just read, they didn't have anyone on the throne to enact laws, but they didn't, they didn't follow God. God was not their ultimate authority. And so as we looked at last month, the, the period of the judges was an era during which God's chosen nation drifted further and further away from him in this continual downward spiral. But again, looking back to where we started this series, in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to Abraham that he would give him a land, that he would give him descendants, and also that he would bless all the earth through him. And then in Genesis 17, God makes the covenant with Abraham and with his offspring on the condition that Abraham and his offspring keep his covenant in return, uh, responding to God's covenant faithfulness in kind with covenant fidelity on their part. If God's going to make this covenant and keep it, you need to keep it too. But unfortunately, when we get to the period of the judges, Israel is about as far gone from that, from covenant fidelity, from faithfulness to God, and all that he had asked of them, are about as far from that as you could possibly get in the period of the judges. Truly one of the darkest, if not the darkest period in Israel's history is what we're talking about right here. But even in that context... The story of Ruth sends a message to Israel and to us who read it today, and that message is that even though Israel deserved to be abandoned by God, he had every right to start over, wipe them out, he didn't do it. He didn't abandon them. Even though they had abandoned him and been unfaithful to his covenant, God was far more merciful and patient with them than they could even dream of deserving. And he did not abandon them, but continued to show himself faithful, despite their being so faithless. And so despite having every right to do so, Ruth shows us that God had not rejected Israel, but was still willing to be faithful to his covenant and to keep his covenant promises that he had made all the way back in Genesis. Just as God promised to Abraham that he would give him land, give him great descendants, and bless the earth through his seed, through Boaz's redemption, Ruth, receives land boaz redeems that land that belonged to their family ruth is given descendants where she previously had no hope of any because her husband had died as we see in chapter 4 and verse 13 that we just read and then even more so through her seed comes not just david but jesus through her seed all the nations of the earth were blessed and so, yes, this was a period of dark times for Israel. People were rejecting God right and left, but for the people who followed God and were true to his covenant, he kept his promises. He kept his promises beyond what was deserved still, even to a foreigner. And so the ultimate, ultimate lesson that we can see from all this is that even in this dark period, if, if you're seeking God, if you're being faithful to him, uh, fi- you'll find him to be a faithful God who has not forgotten his promises To his people. And that that continues to be true throughout the biblical narrative. But the story of Ruth does not only point us back to God's giving of the Abrahamic covenant near the beginning of the Bible, but even more so, Ruth points us forward to Christ and even to us. Boaz is sort of an image of Christ, Boaz is sacrificial. That's kind of what we see about Boaz. We read in Ruth that there was a closer relative than Boaz, who was also a potential kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And so when Boaz asked him, do you want to redeem this land? He says, yes, but Boaz asked him, okay, well, you also need to redeem Ruth. That's part of this deal. And he says, oh, well, that's a little too much. I can't do that. He didn't redeem her because of the cost. He said, I'm going to impair my own inheritance. If I redeem Ruth, I just can't do that. So clearly what we learn from that is that this type of redemption that Boaz is engaging in with Ruth, it's the kind of thing that's going to put a drain on the finances of the Redeemer, because it's going to impair this other guy's inheritance if he does it. So Boaz is going to experience a similar impact, and we can understand that. I mean, Cassie and I are about to bring a baby into this world, and our budget is changing. Oh, our budget is changing. It's, babies are expensive, I tell you what. <laughs> wow. <laughs> But as expensive as babies can be at times, with all the doctor visits and all the diapers and everything, imagine not an infant, but a full-grown woman and all her needs, but not even just that, her aging mother-in-law, too. That gets really expensive. And maybe some of us have experience with that, too. I mean, who wants to sign up for that, right? Based on the responsibilities alone, just having to to take care of Ruth and her mother-in-law much less considering their financial needs would be also Boaz's sole responsibility. That's serious stuff. I mean, that's, that's a lot to take on. So you can understand why this other guy says, no, that's going to create a problem for my kids that I already have, for my inheritance that, that I already have to take care of. But Boaz is different. Boaz shows himself pretty unfazed by that. And he he appears very determined to redeem Ruth from the moment she reveals her relation to him and her need to be redeemed. And so Boaz never complains. He never complains, but he consistently sacrifices for Ruth. He provides for her despite her inability to really do anything for him. And in making such sacrifices and offering such service to Ruth, Boaz shows himself to be an image, a shadow of Christ himself. What does Christ do for us? He sacrifices for us, despite great cost. He sacrifices for us, no matter our inability to do anything for him. He sacrifices for us, no matter the baggage that we bring along into this equation. And we bring a lot sometimes. It's a beautiful picture that Boaz shows us. I'm not saying Boaz was perfect. We don't have to say that. That, That's not the point. What Boaz does do as he does a good job of filling the role of just being a signpost, a shadow that points us to Christ, who is perfect and who is the greatest sacrificial redeemer that there ever was and ever will be. But as amazing of a picture of Christ as Boaz shows us, just by the fact that he is a sacrificial redeemer, the even more amazing thing is that he does this despite the fact that Ruth is not an Israelite. She is a foreigner. Ruth's not one who is under the law of Moses in the traditional sense. From everything I can tell, it's questionable whether or not Boaz even had an obligation to Ruth at all under the letter of the law in Leviticus 25. If you go to Leviticus 25, he's talking about Israelite families. He's talking about people who are are blood Israelites, it seems like. And that law was clearly for Israelites, not for foreigners. But nonetheless, Boaz chooses to redeem Ruth for some reason. And he does it without apology, He doesn't say, well, you know, I might could do that. He does so very intentionally. And as he does so, he becomes a shadow of what God will do through Jesus and extending that offer of redemption to all the nations. And Ruth herself specifically shows us that even though we are not part of physical Israel, if we will adopt her mantra that Israel's God will be our God and God's people will be our people, we will go where he says go and stay where he says stay. And God will provide redemption for us to foreigners though we are and unworthy as we are. Praise God. On paper, there's nothing about Ruth that really merited Boaz's redemption of her. She didn't bring a lot to the table. She was a foreigner. It wouldn't look like somebody would say, oh, that's a good candidate for redemption. I, I want her. But yet he did redeem her. And he gives us hope in that. Inasmuch as much as in this story, we are Ruth and Jesus is Boaz. And God has provided for our redemption as well, undeserving though we are. So this, true, this story truly does point us forward to Christ and to us. Because ultimately, this story is the gospel story. That's what the, bo- the book of Ruth is. And that is where its true beauty lies. But I think we can make this even more personal this morning things that we need to think about in terms of the applications of this story. Because another key thing, the account of Ruth, and specifically the redemption and marriage of Ruth by Boaz, described in chapter 4, shows us is that even when those around us have forsaken God, we can still be righteous. Even when everyone around us has decided to go and leave God and do what they want to do, no king in Israel, doing what was right in their own eyes, you can still be faithful to God. You can choose that. And as we've already noted, this is during the time period of the judges. We think our time is bad. We, we look around us and we think things are pretty bad. And we're not wrong. It is pretty bad. We'll admit that. Sin is in the world, right? People have rejected God. And that never ends well. It never in, ends well for individuals, for families, nor for the nation as a whole. And If we stay on the track that we're on. We'll likely see some consequences for that. And so we see people confused about their very gender. We see people treating each other abysmally. We see war. We see people attacking each other, people made in the image of God. We see families breaking apart. And yes, undoubtedly, our world today is quickly crumbling under the consequences of its own sin. But honestly, compared to what went on in Judges, as bad as our day is, and it is, I think Judges might be worse. Reading Judges will make you sick to your stomach, really. I've had that feeling, reading Judges. As bad as our day is, I really think the depravity that characterized Israel during that time period may be even worse. And Judges records things I don't even want to talk about in a sermon. I struggled trying to pick a passage in Judges that would actually be family-friendly to discuss because it is so depraved so sickening, where they went when they departed from God. And so, yes, our day is bad, but Judges is probably even worse. But bringing it back around, that's the backdrop of the story of Ruth. That's what's going on the next town over, so to speak. But what the book of Ruth shows us is that even in a time like that, people can still choose to be righteous, Just because the nation is going down the toilet doesn't mean we cannot choose to serve God and be faithful. Just because the nation in general has forsaken God, they've gone down this path of depravity, does not mean that we can't choose to be different from everyone around us and to be holy and righteous and obedient to God. It's almost like that's what God's called us to do from the very beginning. The Israelite nation described in Judges is defined by instance after instance of faithlessness and sin and rebellion and depravity. But Boaz and Ruth show us that just because the nation is defined and marked by sin and immorality, we don't have to be. And I'll even take it a step further in applying this principle to us. Even when the nation in which we live is defined and marked by sin and immorality, we must not be defined and marked by that sin and immorality. We have to choose to be God's holy people. Yes, it's depressing. It's depressing to live in a nation where the leaders are corrupt and sinful behavior is rampant and out of control. oh I guess that applies to us too. I was talking about Israel, but yeah, that applies to us, right? But Ruth shows us that there is a way for godly people to handle that. And it's not to complain and be depressed and sit around and wallow in how horrible things are and we don't know what to do about it and, and argue about politics all day long. Ruth shows us that the way for godly people to handle that is to choose to live differently than all those other people who have rejected God. And the narrative of this book serves as a reminder that godly individuals, not doing anything grandiose, not doing anything earth-shattering that's, whoa, that's incredible, but simply doing what is right, doing what is right in spite of the depravity of the world around us can actually accomplish greater good than we can imagine. And Ruth shows us that the reality is, even when it may seem like there are no others in the nation as a whole who are being true to God's covenant and laws, we're likely not alone as we feel. Uh, But in every generation, I think what Ruth is showing us is that there's a remnant. There is a remnant. Even if we read Judges and we say, surely there's no way that there's anyone left who's, who's doing right. Everything just seems so bad. Guess what? Ruth and Boaz are here. They're doing what's right. They're keeping God's covenant. They're being faithful. And just as Ruth and Boaz prove that point, that there's a remnant in their generation, they give us hope for ours as well. But when there's a remnant of people who are faithful and obedient, there's something even more amazing that happens than just the fact that, oh, there's good people still there. And that something more amazing that happens is that even in a wicked nation, when people choose to be faithful to God, Anytime people choose to be faithful to God, God can and will be glorified. Notice what the women of the neighborhood, back in Ruth chapter 4, notice what the women of the neighborhood, as they're described in verse 17, say to Naomi. They say, blessed be the Lord, in verse 14, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Wait. Wait. I, I thought Boaz was the redeemer. I thought Boaz redeemed Ruth. He's the one who came and said, I'll do this. I'll, I'll do this. And so shouldn't, shouldn't they be saying, well, thank goodness for Boaz, who came along and redeemed you. What a great guy. I mean, he's really something. Piece of work right there. That might make more sense on the surface, but we know that in actuality, the women of the neighborhood actually got it right. They got it right. The Lord is the one to be praised. Because ultimately what Boaz did was he just followed God's law. He applied God's principles in a way that was consistent with God's own character, which is what he calls all his people to do. To follow God's law, apply his principles, and act in a way consistent with God's character. And so really as we continue to go down that path, what we find in the book of Ruth is that the key characters of Ruth They're really just filling what are really just supporting roles in this story. They're not the the main characters. They're not the main actors. They are supporting characters as God is praised for his redemption. And God is shown to be the true key character of this entire narrative. Even though Boaz and Ruth are noteworthy, godly people, they really just kind of fade into the background as we realize they actually were just imitating God and following after the example of his character. And so what I hope we can see from this story of Ruth, which we call it the story of Ruth, what I hope we can see is that it's really not Ruth's story at all. It is God's story. The story of what he can do, what he has done, and what he will still do for all those who seek him, submit to him as their God, and live in his image. Just as Ruth and Boaz were able to glorify God just by living out his covenant in the midst of an ungodly people The same can be true for us today. If we make the choice to be different, if we make the choice to be faithful to God despite a faithless nation around us, what's ultimately going to happen if we do that right is that God will be glorified. And that's all we can ask for for our lives. That's why we exist. And so from what we can see, it seems that Ruth and Boaz are not acting out of a desire to be some great heroes. They're not trying to go down in history as these great characters in the history of Israel All they're doing is just what God's asked of all his people to keep his covenant and follow his laws. And likewise, I think the lesson for us is we don't need to view our task as some sort of heroic effort being God's people today where where we we become big-name disciples or we're looked up to by other Christians. Wow, that guy is amazing. That's not the point. Rather, we must make it our aim to act out of a simple belief that God is sovereign God is God, and our task, no matter what is going on around us, is just to keep his covenant, his new covenant, which he made with us through Jesus. And our task therein is to follow all that his grace demands of us under that new covenant. That's all there is to it. We're not trying to do anything earth-shattering. God did that. We just follow what he has asked of us from there. And if we will do this, God can and will be glorified in our lives too. And that's a beautiful thing, because then... We are fulfilling our purpose for which we were made. We are living in God's image. We are reflecting him to the world around us. And we are everything we were made to be. And the crazy thing is we will have fulfilled our purpose, even in spite of a world that encourages us to run away from our God-given purpose of glorifying him. You say, serve yourself. But we can still choose to glorify God instead, even in that environment. So let's make that our aim. Let's not try to be grand heroes, not try to be people looked up to as incredible. Let's just try to be faithful followers of God. That's what we need to be about. Keepers of his covenant, doers of his word, no matter what happens around us. That's what ought to define us as Christians. Boaz redeemed Ruth from the loss of provision, the loss of hope of offspring that she had experienced. And he did so sacrificially redeeming her at the cost of a significant portion of his finances. But Jesus has redeemed us from the loss of our relationship with God, an even greater need. And he did so sacrificially, and he did so at an even greater cost than Boaz's finances. He did so at the cost of his very life. He gave his own life up in order that we might have eternal life with God. So as Christians, let's be thankful for that every single day. The picture we see in Ruth It reminds us of what Jesus has done in redeeming all of us. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to recognize what Jesus has done for you. And consider the fact that without accepting his redemption and baptism, you're even more hopeless than Ruth was without a husband to provide for her in multiple ways. But all who accept Christ and baptism, on the contrary, have even greater hope than Ruth did when she was redeemed. Hope not just for this life, or for provision here, but hope for the life to come. That's what we have in Christ. If you don't have that, you need it. So we want to help you have that hope this morning. If you have a spiritual need, we can assist you with and help you in any way with this morning. Let us know as we stand and as we sing.